19 at 12, a revolutionary chick, and I mean that in the non-sexist uh, sense, a revolutionary chick cries, strike down the wall and liberates itself from the egg state. In 1940, ostriches pull their heads out of the sand and unite to fight fascism. In 1972, baby X grows up without a gender and is happy about it. That's right. Rather than teaching children to obey authority, to conform, or to seek redemption through prayer, there's a tradition of 20th century leftist literature encouraging children to question the authority of those in power. It's all collected in a new edited volume that is quite beautiful. It's titled Tales for Little Rebels, a collection of radical children's literature. And uh, the editors join me uh, on the line. We've got uh, Professor Julia Mickenberg and Philip Nell. And uh, let's see if I can uh, pull up their bios here. Uh, Julia Mickenberg is Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of California. University of California. I'm at the University of California. University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of Learning from the Left, Children's Literature, The Cold War, and Radical Politics in the United States, which won a number of awards, including the Best Book Award for the children's Liter- from the Children's Literature Association and the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth. She's currently co-editing the Oxford Handbook of Children's Literature. We also have on the line, if I could find the proper email, uh, we have uh, Professor uh, Philip Nell. He's Professor of English and Director of Kansas State University's Program in Children's Literature. His books include Tales for Little Rebels, The Annotated Car, Dr. Seuss, American Icon, and J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter Novels, A Reader's Guide. He's finishing a biography of Crockett Johnson and Ruth Krauss and co-editing Keywords for Children's Literature. And they both join me this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here this morning. How are you both doing? Great. Doing well. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks so much. Why don't we, uh, we get started? The, I think the obvious question uh, that people might have is, uh, how do professors at universities get an idea to put together a volume of radical children's literature? Well, I guess I can uh, start answering this question. Uh, this kind of this kind of came out of my first book, and the way that uh, and in that book, I was interested. I started out with an interest in the left, and I read in a book by Alan Wald that many uh, radicals were able to write children's books to escape the blacklist and McCarthyism in general, and that was a kind of counterintuitive idea to me. And I looked into, began looking into this and found uh, that this was a, a whole tradition, and it wasn't uh, exclusive to the communist left either. It was a whole uh, uh, tradition that really covers the history of the left. So, um, and I was, in that book, really interested more in the authors themselves, um, although I was, of course, looking at the, at the books, and I found um, just so much cool stuff that I wanted to, there was a kind of show-and-tell impulse, and I knew of Phil's work and knew that he shared an interest in children's literature and the left, and so I thought uh, that we could join forces and find a lot of cool stuff and put a book together, and we, um, and we did. <laughs> yep, and I said, yes, please, sounds like a great idea, <laughs> and we, we joined forces. So what has the reaction been since it's been out? It's been pretty good. Um, we've gotten um, some strong reviews. Um, there was even um, an essay in the New York Times Book Review, which uh, surprised and pleased us both. So 
reaction so far has been good, wouldn't you say, Julia? Yeah, we haven't had any... Um I don't think we've had any uh, um, strongly negative reaction, and we've certainly had a lot of uh, a lot of interest. I think um, I think partly people are just intrigued by the idea that this that this stuff even exists, and that it's mm-hmm. this kind of um, forgotten tradition. And we were deliberately tra- trying to choose works that were out of print, so that we could show this this tradition that is pretty much forgotten. When it, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and I think the book also just happened to be published at a moment when the economic crisis began, and so suddenly uh, radical ideas were at least being tossed around. Um, and so I think that the book also just happened to arrive at a, at a, a moment of, of crisis when people are thinking outside the box. And that was, you know, the essay in the New York Times book review was sort of um, joking at that, about that, saying, you know, the banks have been taken over, socialism has arrived, maybe we should go back and look at these lessons. One of the things that I like about it is uh, the format of of the design itself that it is kind of the the larger hardback mm-hmm. that kind of uh, you know mirrors the Dr. Seuss and all the other you know where the wild things are though I thought that was paperback or whatever it might be it it almost has the the look and feel of uh, a, a child's book. Oh, good. Yeah, it's good to hear that. You know, we uh, we struggled a lot with design, and of course there was a professional designer who. I, you know, I continued that that struggle, but we were trying to fit a, a whole lot of pieces in here, and um, you know, there there's also some going back and forth about whether this is a book for children or a book for adults, and we really wanted it to be both, which is which is not easy to pull off. <laughs> I think you hit a good uh, a good compromise. So, h- how does one go about uh, finding? the content for for a collection of radical children's literature. It must have been a daunting task. Well, uh, we, of course, could rely heavily on Julia's deep and vast knowledge of the subject, so that was extraordinarily helpful. Um, and then you, you learn a lot of this as you go along. You know, So, for example, we were going to include, and we did include, um, a book called... Uh, uh, the Races of Mankind in Henry's Backyard by um, Ruth Benedict and Jean Weltfish, and I was interviewing uh, the daughter of Jean Weltfish, and she mentioned a book by Monroe Leaf about the UN called Three Promises to You, and I thought that sounded great, and her conversation led us to include that book, and including that book led us to donate 10% of the profits of our book to UNESCO because that's what Gil Leaf, Monroe Leaf's son, suggested uh, in lieu of payment. And we thought, well, that's a great idea. That's perfect. That's perfect for the book. Of course, hmm. we haven't made any money yet, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but if we, that do, we do, we will give it to UNESCO. No, and then we found, you know, uh, one way that we, um, or one way that I found some of the stories initially was by searching through uh, left-wing periodicals, and many of them had um, recommended children's book lists, uh, whether that was the Little Socialist magazine for boys and girls or the New Masses. Um, Ms. Magazine had a Stories for Free Children column, and they put together a collection um, called Stories for Free Children. So there were uh, those lists, and we had people recommending books to us. We sometimes had archivists finding things for mm-hmm. us. I found... Um, one uh, writer's papers I was looking at, she had a list of anti-fascist children's books, and I thought that's where we found Oscar the Ostrich is in somebody's list of anti-fascist children's books. So it was really, and we spent, I would say we spent years um, putting this list together. So it was kind of a slow process. Hmm. 
I, uh, welcome to the world of uh, academic publishing for all the people listening about. I think my first book, I think uh, the only money I made was because my mom had bought, you know, <laughs> boxes and boxes of it. So, uh, well, uh, you know, I throughout all the, the email exchanges that we've had, I, I can't remember uh, exactly which selections that you had uh, had chosen to, to share with our readers. But uh, before we continue, it might probably be a good idea to give our listeners a sense of the content that uh, that's in the book. So... Uh, I don't know if you each wanted to, to read a little passage or uh, how sure. you wanted to do this, but uh, why don't we give our listeners a sample? So if you could each introduce the selection you chose, that'd be great. Sure. Um, well, we have eight different sections, and I'm going to read from the section called Organize. And um, in that section is a story by someone who you may have heard of. Uh, his name is Sid Hoff, and he's famous for Danny and the Dinosaur and for writing cartoons for The New Yorker for over 30 years. But... And before, and before you do, let me just let listeners know, if they've just tuned in, that we're about to hear readings from Tales for Little Rebels. It's a collection of radical children's literature available on NYU Press, and we're speaking with the editors slash authors, Julia Mickenberg and Philip Nell, because there is a lot of uh, editors' introductions, so I think you guys need to get some credit for that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but before Sid Hoff um, became the Sid Hoff who you know, uh, he also published work under the name A. Redfield. That was the name he used when writing cartoons for New Masses and when he writed, uh, writing cartoons for The Daily Worker. And the very first children's book he published was actually under the name A. Redfield. And it's called Mr. His, A Children's Story for Anybody. And I'm going to read you a little bit of it right now. Once upon a time, there was a fat little man whose name was Mr. His. He was a very rich little man, and he lived in a little town, which was called His Town, because everything in it was his. The fields of wheat and corn, the fruit trees, the great mines, everything was his. Was the sky his, too? It didn't matter, because hardly anyone in his town ever looked up to see if it was a blue sky, a gray sky, or any old sky. There were lots of houses in his town, but they weren't nice places at all. They were old and tumble down, and fire could break out in any one of them at a minute's notice. No one of them was fit for a human being. Oh, yes, there was one house in his town fit for a human being. It was a very lovely house made of marble and glass and steel. No fire could break out here, no disease, no vermin. Here, indeed, was a house fit for a human being. Any human being? No, only one, a very special human being, Mr. His. Would you like to own everything? Sure you would, and you could buy anything you wanted and have so much fun. But would you like to own everything while everybody else had nothing? That wouldn't be much fun, would it? Well, maybe it wouldn't be fun for you, because you'd worry about others. But not Mr. His. He didn't even know there were any. Every day he would skip through the street with a paper and pencil in his hands, figuring up profits and singing as loud as he could. Do, re, mi, fa, he would sing. Sola, ti, do. The poor people of his town would hear him coming and would run into their houses and lock the doors. For the Mr. His had everything there was. One thing he had not. Friends. And so the story goes on to tell us how the people of his town organize, they unite, they band together to take the town back for themselves and drive out Mr. His, and the, and the story uh, ends like this, as Mr. His is, is leaving his town, says, uh, and now, if Mr. His ever comes back, he'll find a new his town. The fields of wheat and corn, the fruit trees, the great mines, 
everything belongs to the people. And, oh, yes, now it's our town. That's great. That's wonderful. And that is from uh, Tales for Little Rebels, a collection of radical children's literature. And, Professor Mickenberg, you have a selection as well. Sure. Um, I can read from The Practical Princess, which was by Jay Williams, and it was one of a series of feminist fairy tales that Jay Williams wrote. He was better known probably for his uh, um, Danny Dunn science fiction books that he did with uh, Ray Abrashkin. But, uh, and, and there were a number of, there's a few other actually feminist fairy tales or feminist tales um, in here. Anyway, I will, I will start with this one. Princess Bedelia was as lovely as the moon shining upon a lake full of water lilies. She was as graceful as a cat leaping, and she was also extremely practical. When she was born, three fairies had come to her cradle to give her gifts, as was usual in that country. The first fairy had given her beauty. The second had given her grace. But the third, who was a wise old creature, had said, I give her common sense. I don't think much of that gift said King Ludwig, raising his eyebrows. What good is common sense to a princess? All she needs is charm. Nevertheless, when Bedelia was 18 years old, something happened which made the king change his mind. A dragon moved into the neighborhood. He settled in a dark cave on top of a mountain, and the first thing he did was to send a message to the king. I must have a princess to devour, the message said, or I shall breathe out my fiery breath and destroy the kingdom. Sadly, King Ludwig called together his counselors and read them the message. Perhaps, said the Prime Minister, we had better advertise for a knight to slay the dragon. That is what is generally done in these cases. I'm afraid we haven't the time, answered the king. The dragon has given us only until tomorrow morning. There is no help for it. We shall have to send him the princess. Princess Bedelia had come to the meeting because, as she said, she liked to mind her own business, and this was certainly her business. Rubbish, she said. Dragons can't tell the difference between princesses and anyone else. Use your common sense. He's just asking for me because he's a snob. That may be so, said her father, but if we don't send you along, he'll destroy the kingdom. Right, said Bedelia. I see I'll have to deal with this myself. So Bedelia, of course, uh, slays the dragon, and then she uh, uh, tries to get rid of the evil Lord Garp, who attempts to lock her up in a tower, and there she finds a prince who has also been locked up in a tower and has been sleeping for so long that his hair and beard have grown uh, to cover his entire body. And she wakes up the prince and uses his long hair for them both to escape, and it ends uh, like this. And, of course, since Bedelia had rescued him from captivity, she married him. First, however, she made him get a haircut and a shave so that she could see what he really looked like, for she was always practical. And I should just add that this that this story is 1969, and Mr. His is 1933 or 30, No, 39. 39. Sorry, yep. yeah. That's okay. So 30 year difference there. Great. And uh, <laughs> those are you know I, I'm listening to these, and I should first of all say that I think both of you might have missed your callings because those were great dramatic reads. <laughs> well, I do them every, every night for my children, so I've 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 I've, I've I've made my calling. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, one of the questions that uh, I jotted down while you were reading is just the whole idea of children's literature. Is that kind of a thing of the past now, especially with the popularity of uh, Harry Potter's and uh, I guess the, the Twilight series, which so many people are reading? I'm listening to these things and I'm thinking these are things that I would want to read. And so 
is it almost a misnomer to call these things children's literature? Well, children's literature always has multiple audiences. I mean, it certainly has children as an intended readership, but it also has the grown-ups who may read it to them because they're, they're parents, teachers, um, uh, uh, agents, editors. Um, there are always there are always adults who are the implied audience for children's literature as well. So um, you know. I think yeah, I mean I think that's one of the sort of secret pleasures of either being a parent or studying children's literature. It's kind of like the zoo. We feel like we're some kind of a pervert if we go to the zoo without a child. That there's <laughs> there's no reason we you know adults can't enjoy the zoo, and there's also no reason why adults can't enjoy so-called children's literature. Exactly. <laughs> I want to remind listeners through and tune to in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with the editors of Tales for Little Rebels, uh, Professor Julia Mickenberg and Professor Philip Nell. Um, you, know, you had mentioned earlier that the, the impetus for the collection was recognizing that writing children's literature was a way to, uh, to deal with the blacklist. I don't remember where I, uh, in what context I read this in, in the introduction, but... Uh, Tell our listeners the FBI was uh, putting out um, Black Panther's coloring books. Explain that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, there, uh, the COINTEL program, the counterintelligence program, which was begun in the 1960s to fight um, various uh, revolutionary or not even necessar- necessarily revolutionary um, left-wing groups ranging from the civil rights movement to the new left, um, and they would do things like write uh, fake le- fake letters from one member of a group to another to incite hatred within the group and do things. Uh, this uh, Black Panther coloring book was meant to show how Black Panthers were uh, teaching children uh, violence. If, if people are interested, I think if you Google the Black Panther coloring book, you can see the whole thing online, but they have, you know, kids picking up guns and stuff, which was, you know, it was not actually created by the Black Panthers. But it speaks to the fact that there are, um, you know, groups of whatever politics, right and left, are interested in influencing children. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you had asked uh, when you sent us an email is, is, can we trace the history of the left through children's literature? And I think you most definitely can. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the the kind of research that I have done and the the writing that I have done has looked at uh, the efforts of law enforcement, particularly uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's uh, my degrees in criminology oh. to influence uh, public opinion. So uh, you know, many readers don't realize that Captain America was the brainchild of Hoover and huh. people working within the FBI. They were threatened that uh, Superman refused to fight in World War II. <laughs> and, uh, well, he, he technically didn't refuse to fight. He, he failed, of all things, his, uh, his physical for the military because uh, they had to come out with a way that, you know, someone who stands for universal truth, justice, and, of course, the American way is third on that list, uh, couldn't go fight, uh, you know, uh, on behalf of America. So when he uh, enlisted in, uh, when he tried to enlist in the military, he failed his physical because he had X-ray vision and he accidentally read the eye chart in the neighboring examination room. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so then the FBI created uh, Captain America, worked to help create Captain America, who then could go and represent the United States. And then, of course... Uh, when uh, Dillinger and Capone and all of the different gangsters were so popular, 
the FBI wanted to create something to counter that, uh, and so they created Crime Doesn't Pay and, you know, all of those kinds of comic books. So mm-hmm. it is very interesting that not only can you, can I guess you can learn, uh, as you just mentioned, the history of progressive struggles by looking at this collection, but perhaps, you know, the, the counter struggles by those in, in, uh, in power. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there is a strong left-wing tradition in comic books, and the um, uh, EC Comics, they did, uh, well, they wound up doing Mad Magazine, but it was the... Um, Weird Science and Weird, Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt, yep. and, yeah, and a lot of those people were affiliated with uh, uh, Harvey Kurtzman, I guess, who became editor of the... Um, of Mad Magazine. And William Gaines, who and was William Gaines, incredibly yeah. progressive. Right. They both won. I think Kurtzman had been doing working for the uh, Communist Daily Worker before he got into that. So there's a lot of, and there are some pretty progressive ideas uh, in even these really bloody comics. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's quite interesting to uh, to trace. I mean, I have a, a good friend uh, actually for for whom I bought this uh, this collection. He's got a little girl that uh, is 19 months, and I, I spend a lot of time with her. And you know, he's a big uh, comic book aficionado, mm-hmm. and uh, he's always telling me just how progressive a lot of the the comic books are. And it's maybe there's something uh, you know, as you said before, if if you're going to be blacklisted by putting these thoughts out in, in quote-unquote, mainstream, you know, adult uh, literature or entertainment or whatnot, then uh, there's a, a good way to get these messages through in, in children's uh, stories. Yeah, and, and especially in children's books as opposed to comics books. I mean, as you know, comics book, comic books did fall under uh, censure, and, you know, there, there were the, the hearings and so on um, inspired by Wortham's work, whereas children's literature never never received that level of policing. I mean, I think Julia found in her research for learning from the left that there were maybe three authors of children's books who were called to testify before McCarthy, and really only one of those was asked about a children's book, and the children's book that she was asked about was really not her political children's book. So, um, you know, interestingly, it it remained uh, beyond the the purview of of, uh, those who were in the government and and concerned about this sort of stuff. Were there issues that you found were not adequately uh, covered in uh, your research? You know, were there parts of uh, the the history of uh, progressive America that you felt were left out in, not deliberately, but that you had trouble finding uh, pieces to include? Sure, yeah. I I mean, and I was, uh, just to maybe give your readers an idea of some of the things that, that, I mean, your readers, your listeners, an idea of some of the things that, that are covered, uh, we had stories that I think re- we have stories like the Socialist Primer and Happy Valley that uh, in which fair play uh, defeats the evil capital and the, um, uh, so that from representing the socialist movement we have stories that are representing the communist movement. We have a story published by the Amalgamated Clothing Workers um, of America called Mary Stays After School, representing the labor movement. Uh, Johnny Get Your Money's Worth was by somebody from the consumers movement. Uh, we have stories about science, representing leftwings, uh, of ver- leftists of various stripes, idea that science could um, empower children and, and teach them to understand the way the world works. Um, several stories breaking down um, racial barriers, fighting racism. We have a story that was originally published by 
Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Peace Movement, Feminist Movement, Environmental Movement, uh, Feminist Movement, uh, Gay and Lesbian Movement. Uh, because we made the choice to include only stories that were out of print, stories that are addressing gay and lesbian movement have mostly been since published since the 1980s. I mean, we have the story about Baby X who's gender-free and proud of it, but there's no discussion of sexuality in there. And there are there certainly are books out there that address the gay and lesbian right. movement. Um, right. Heather Has Two Mommies is probably the most well-known. Uh, there's a book called Entango Makes Three, which is about uh, two uh, gay penguins in Central Park, which Phil bought for my children. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, King and King. Uh, I was trying to think. I, I, I don't think I found anything about the anti-globalization movement. Phil is much more up on the contemporary children's, very contemporary children's literature. Um, yeah, um, let's see, anti-globalization, um, put me on the spot here. Uh, I mean, the, the answer I would have said, too, would have been, you know, in terms of major movements, something that there's, there's less of, um, and just isn't any of his, um, books addressing, um, gay and lesbian rights. Um, I think, you know, for the reason that you mentioned, um, and also because the, of the age group that we're targeting with this, I mean, we're really focused on younger readers and, the, the, the books that tend to address, or the books that do address um, equal rights for gays and lesbians, mostly focus on parents. You know, they mostly focus on the rights of, of parents um, and, you know, what it's like to have two parents of the same sex and that sort of thing. When, when you get into um, literature for adolescents, then they really more directly address sexuality, um, as, you know, as you might expect. I and suppose. then there's, uh, I guess, the, uh, I was thinking of, you know, the immigration rights movement that's very yeah. popular now. You know, again, that's more... Contemporary. I'm thinking of something like the um, the circuit by um, forgetting the author's name, just an immigrant narrative. And and to some extent, I guess the uh, small hands, big hands. It's about um, which is in our collection. In our collection, it's about uh, Mexican American uh, immigrant workers and their struggles with the United you know, joining up the United Farm Workers Union. Hmm. But, you know, I mean, our, our hope is that this history of radical children's literature this, uh, will, will inspire others to create more and, and create radical children's literature that speaks to the concerns of today. So, you know, we don't, we don't have everything yeah, here, lot, but lots we, of, we hopefully uh, it will be relevant. Lots of different, uh, different issues that could uh, be included, certainly globalization, uh, immigration, uh, mm -hmm. animal rights, uh, yeah. yep. you know, so many different things. Um, yep. Well, uh, finally, uh, one of the things I really liked about the, the intro is uh, trying to maybe dispel the idea that somehow these stories were propagandizing uh, children compared to what passes for mainstream children's literature. So uh, problematize for our listeners the whole idea that uh, your book contains political children's stories while the mainstream is apolitical. Well, sure. Uh, children's literature is and has always been political. I mean, go back to the 17th century. The alphabet in the New England primer, which begins A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, and then next to an image of a Bible, B, thy life demand, this book attend, right? So it's not just teaching the ABCs, it's teaching you to be a good Christian. And children's literature is, is, is and has always been political because children are the future. You know, in educating children, grown-ups are potentially shaping tomorrow. Um, so in this respect, even literature supporting the status quo is political, right? Because it's normalizing the status quo. It's saying this is how things are, and 
Therefore, this is how they should be. So children's literature, no matter whether it's explicitly political, you know, no matter whether it's specifically, say, arguing for an idea from the right or an idea from the left, even if it's just supporting a, uh, something that people accept, it's political. It's always political. And, and I think that's why, you know, people of political inclinations are drawn to it and are drawn to producing it. Um, they want to make a difference. They want to make a change. And what better place to start than with the next generation? And, I mean, just to, to tag on to that, racism and racist ideas were so um, ubiquitous in children's literature that when mostly left-wing writers started just putting, say, black kids and white kids pictures in the same book, that is what seemed political and radical. It didn't seem political to have these, you know, blacks always in a subservient role. It seemed political to put them on equal terms with with whites. So, um, you know, and certainly it is making a political statement to say blacks should always be in a subservient role. And, of course, one need only look at, uh, you know, the someday my prince will come or, right. you know, mm-hmm. all of these these disnified, uh, you know, not to single out Disney because, you know, but... <laughs> Let's face it, I'm uh, within the earshot of Disneyland are, right yes, now. You are in Orange County. <laughs> so, uh, so definitely one need only look, uh, you know, one, one need only look at uh, the, the kind of fare that Disney was putting out at the time. I think they've gotten better, but I'm not 100% sure on that. That might be a uh, discussion for another show. But uh, anyway, the book is titled Tales for Little Rebels, a collection of radical children's literature, uh, edited by uh, professors uh, Julia Mickenberg and and Philip Nell. It's available at uh, NYU Press. And uh, do you guys have uh, uh, websites and emails or any of that kind of stuff if people want to get uh, more information about the book? Um, sure, yeah. I mean, if you want to get more information about the book, um, I think punching it into Google will, will uh, get you there right away. Um, you can also find it via my homepage, the book section. And if you just punch my name into Google, that will get you there as well. And the NYU Press website has... Is, I would say that's a good place to look yep. because they have selections of they have uh, you can I think download the introduction if I'm if I'm remembering correctly and you can also look at um, a number of the illustrations so it can give you a really good sense of the book and it's nyupress.org and uh, listeners can also in uh, perhaps a few hours log on to uh, KUCITalk.org, and uh, you'll be able to hear the uh, the editors give those uh, readings again. It'll be uh, posted to uh, the KUCI website. So uh, if you, you missed that, you tuned in a little late, uh, do check it out. Uh, professors Mickenberg and Nell, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for joining us this morning and for those wonderful reads. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank and, you. And uh, good luck with the book. Okay, thank you. Thanks. All right, take care. Bye. You too. And uh, we'll be back after more children's music from uh, Kimya Dawson. It's KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Stick around.